This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. And let's turn to Genesis chapter 32 together. As I mentioned last week, we have some new Bibles that are provided here and on the sides. You're welcome, if you don't have a Bible, to to grab one of those. You'll find Genesis 32 on page 25 of those Bibles. So um, love for you to grab a copy of God's Word as we go through it together. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would teach us from your Word in a way that only you can, in a way that's not just information, in a way that's transformative, in a way that as we leave this time, we would be different, like Jacob is different. We would never be the same. And the only way that happens is for you to come and to work in our midst. And so we pray that you would do it and that you would bless your people and build them up, encourage them and strengthen them, convict them, protect them. Lord, we pray that you would use us for your glory. Lord, we pray that we would desperately want to know you and meet with you and point others to you. And glorify your name in our time, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine learning as a teenager that you were going blind, that you had maybe months that you would be left to see and then you would be totally blind. That was the news that young George Matheson received uh, as he was making plans to attend college. He didn't let that um, discourage him, though. He went ahead and enrolled at Glasgow University And he graduated early. He graduated college at 19. Uh, He he was called, struggling with a call to the pastorate, to ministry. And so he immediately enrolled in in seminary and and preparing for ministry. But it was in that time that his eyesight totally failed him. Now, he had two sisters, wonderful sisters, that wanted to help him. And so they, they actually enrolled in school with him to help him navigate that. So they did the languages with him and, and kind of helped him to, to make it through life uh, as a blind person. But he also endured a great loss. So he was engaged um, at this time as well to be married. And after it became clear that he would be permanently blind, his fiancée returned that engagement ring and left him. He would never marry again, and the pain of that rejection would stick with him. Now, he did become a preacher, a powerful preacher in Scotland, but you could say that for the rest of his life, he walked with a limp from that loss. Years later, one of his sisters came to him announcing her engagement to be married. And as you know, as believers, we often experience this, and we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice. And so he did. He rejoiced. With her, but his heart also went back to his own heartache. And he consoled himself by meditating on the love of God, which is something we should all do. Meditate on the love of God for us. And out of that time, he wrote the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, June 6th, 1882. O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths 
its flow. May richer, fuller be. O light that follows all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray that in thy sunshine's blazed its day may brighter, fairer be. What comes to mind when you hear of Matheson's story? What pain or disappointment in your own life? Desertion or betrayal or rejection? Along with these wonderful expressions of love that we get to experience in life, don't we find these realities mixed in as well? These same things, these pains that come along with them? But friends, there is a love that will not let you go. There is a grace that will pursue you even when you're not worth pursuing. What if that, what if God, what if there was a God that loved you despite your weaknesses? and your failures? What if his love was powerful enough even to transform you? There is a love that will not let you go and a God that is committed to saving sinners like you and me. And Jacob, in our story, in Genesis 32, is about to meet him. In fact, he's going to wrestle him. This is a metaphor really for his whole life. And perhaps for many of you in this room, it's a metaphor for your life as well. Jacob is going to come to the end of himself. And it's there that he's going to find true life. He's going to be changed forever. That's what happens when we meet the living God. There is no real relationship with God that doesn't mark us, that doesn't change us and transform us and break us and remake us. He leaves us walking with a limp, full of hope and joy in the one who slays us to make us into his own image. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the main point of our passage in one sentence. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. His love for us is a shaping and breaking and sometimes crippling love that will never let us go. And we see this in chapter 32 of Genesis this morning. And we're going to approach the passage in, in two parts. So part one, we're going to see preparation. So if you're taking notes, number one, preparation, verses 1 to 21. Here you see the preparations that Jacob makes to meet with and reconcile with his brother Esau. Then in part two, we're going to see Jacob's transformation, verses 22 to 32, where God prepares Jacob, not just for meeting Esau, but for the rest of his life. It is a wrestling match like we've never seen before, and Jacob will never be the same. And so there's this flow of, of the narrative of going, bringing Jacob back to Esau, but this, there's an interruption with this preparation and meeting with God that we see here in chapter 32. So I just pray that this would be true of us, that as we look at this passage, that God would transform us. So let's look at part one together, preparation, preparation. We saw last week that the Lord had seen the affliction of his people Israel and slavery, if you remember, in Egypt, and we made the connection there in the way in which he had seen Jacob's own slavery to Laban. And he was delivering Israel to the promised land. He's going to be delivering Jacob out of slavery to the promised land. And Jacob left with all of his people and possessions and is making his way to God's place that he had promised. 
And we saw all those connections between the Garden of Eden and the exile of Adam and Eve to Jacob's exile because of his sin. And now God calling him home and how this pattern of exodus and exile really runs through the Bible and it culminates in Jesus leading a new exodus to himself. The Bible is telling one story and we pick up that story in chapter 32, verse 1. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. I love the way the story begins, kind of with a bang. And not an unfamiliar way for Jacob. Uh, 20 years earlier, if you remember, it hasn't been 20 years for us, but it has been for him, when he was leaving the promised land, when he was leaving Canaan, on the run, the angels of God, same phrase, met him in a vision that he had of, of the stairway going up to heaven, going to the Lord himself in chapter 28, and he had those wonderful promises of, I will be with you. I think it's interesting, isn't it, that, that going into the promised land, coming out of the promised land, he's met with angels. And I think it's okay, and we ought to think back to the Garden of Eden. And remember there that picture, which was God's place and God's land. And remember that the Lord had left there an angel with a flaming sword, a cherubim, to guard the entrance. And it's as if those entrances are still being guarded by angels. So when Jacob leaves and when he enters, he, enters, he deals with angels. And I think this meeting is meant to be an encouragement for him, just like the one in chapter 28 was an encouragement to him. Because look at the way that he responds there in verse 2. If I can find it. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Not only does he proclaim this to be God's camp, but he labels it Mahanaim, which means two camps. You probably have a footnote there in your Bible that says that means two camps. So that word camp is like a military term. It could, be, it could mean something like army. And so there are two, two camps, Jacob's camp and God's. Two armies, Jacob's and God's army. And friends, I just think we should see this as a great encouragement. Jacob should see this as an encouragement. Do you remember that scene in 2 Kings when the Syrians had attacked? They were, they were vastly outnumbering God's people. And Elisha told his servant, do not be afraid. Those that are with us are more than those who are with them. 2 Kings 6. And then the Lord opened his servant's eyes and he saw the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. The psalmist writes in Psalm 43.7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Christian, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. There are two camps with you at all times. Your camp and God's camp. You are not alone. You do not need to fear. You do not need to be intimidated. If the Lord is for you, who can be against you? Now, that's an easy thing to preach, an easy thing to hear and even say amen to. But another thing to live. And notice in the next few verses, Jacob is, is going to, that's going to be put to the test. He hears that Esau is coming. Esau's coming with 400 men. And look at verse 7. Look down at verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And I think Moses means for us to catch the irony there. 
He's already forgotten about the two camps that we saw in verse 1, one of the angel, the army of angels that are with him. So he divides his family now into two camps in hopes that one will escape if, if uh, the other is attacked. So he's motivated, clearly, verse 7, by fear. And so, beloved, we need to pray that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And that these truths that we learn about God would not be just acknowledged But they would make their way into our lives and change the way that we live. There are two camps in your life, believer. Don't be afraid. Don't forget that. And Jacob is learning these things. And and God is patiently teaching him. And Jacob is changing, clearly changing. Right before our eyes here, we're going to see really a new man in chapter 32. And the first big development that we see in his life is initiating reconciliation with his brother. Okay, so that's really what this, is, this whole section is about. So pick it up in verse 3. Chapter 32, verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Sire, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants, I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So just as God sent messengers, angels, and Jacob, Jacob now sends messengers, same word as angels, to Esau. And it's important to realize here that Jacob reaching out to Esau is not a geographical necessity. In other words, Esau is not blocking his way back to the promised land. Uh, Esau had settled far south, down in Mount Sire in Edom. Um, and Sire, if you remember, Sire just means hairy. It's kind of this area that was named after hairy Esau. And it reminds us of the whole incident of Jacob's betrayal and putting on the, the hairy skins on his arms to, to, to trick his father. And Jacob is now intentionally seeking him out to make things right, to find favor in his sight as far as it depends on him. And we just have to say this is God's grace at work in Jacob. And we see this principle, friends, don't we, throughout Scripture. Reconciliation with God leads to reconciliation with our brother and sister. God delivers Jacob from slavery, and notice, immediately, he seeks to be made right with his brother whom he sinned against grievously. So imagine 20 years later, after all of this time, all of this slavery that he's been through, and he doesn't forget about this. He's going back to make things right. He experiences God's grace, and he's compelled then to seek out his brother. And and Christians, this is our calling. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The gospel reconciles us to God and then sets us on a path to reconcile with our brother or our sister. Just think on Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, another principle just hanging over this text. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is what Jacob is doing. Reconciliation with God leads to reconciliation with our brothers and sister. So, Christian, do you need to be reconciled with someone today? Do you need to seek someone out like Jacob seeks out Esau? Do you need to humble yourself and confess your sin? Do you need to ask for forgiveness? And your motivation shouldn't be my words, but it should be your reconciliation with God 
a sinner made righteous before a holy God and then given the ministry of reconciliation to others. That compels this ministry. 1 John 4 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So friends, this has all sorts of implications, not just for your relationships that could be fractured, but for your church membership, for the way that you love and care for others as an expression of your Christianity, that it's not just an individual thing, but it has a corporate shape in the way that you love and care for others. Are you doing that? Are you, are, you, are you expressing that love? Are you showing that reconciling love for others? That's what Jacob is doing, seeking out his brother. And here's what happens. So he sends those messengers out, and then we find, we pick up the story in verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. And that's all it says, right? The, the silence from like a response for Esau, is ominous. Couple that with him coming toward Jacob with 400 men, which also makes up what a typical militia would be. This is an army. You can, we can begin to understand his fear in verse 7. And now Jacob is going to take several action steps in his response to this news. And, and yes, some of these steps are clearly motivated by fear, but I just want to be careful with this. And I think we have to be careful as we look at Jacob's life as a whole And understand that some of the things that he's doing here are just simply wise and prudent and and right. And so as we follow Jacob's story, we've seen kind of both things. Uh, But we've always seen him constantly taking the initiative, taking action. He's not sitting around and kind of letting the action come to him passively. And and I think that's that's instructive for us. Uh, The message from Scripture isn't trust God and do nothing. I think there's a clear balance that, that, that we see here in this passage of planning, strategizing, and praying, action, and trusting God to do the work. So, so God is sovereign and we are responsible. And so his actions don't indicate necessarily a lack of faith. As we'll see, he's trusting God to do the work through his actions. And just notice that balance as we go through. Jacob prepares for Esau's coming, first by dividing up his camp into two. We saw that in verse 7. He also begins to send this parade of gifts to to, to kind of soften things up a bit for for Esau as he approaches and to make amends for things that have happened. He's also going to take take steps to protect his own family. But pick it up in uh, chapter 32, verse 13. Look at verse 13. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When he saw my brother meet you and asked you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second, And the third, and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. 
So the present passed on ahead of him, and he, he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabuk. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. So we'll say more about this when we get to chapter uh, 33. But it's interesting the words that Jacob uses here as he's sending these things off to, to Esau. You kind of get the picture of these droves are spaced out. You know, you, you get one parade with these. I mean, this is immense wealth, right? If you just imagine the cost of some of these gifts and all of these animals that he's sending, Jacob has, is fantastically wealthy, and, and God has completely blessed him in an amazing way, and he's sending them in, in droves, separated out. So one comes, and then right as they're leaving, another comes, and as they're leaving, another comes. But he uses these words that are really worship words to describe what he's doing with Esau, like that word present, which is the word that's for offering, used in sacrifices, and appease, which means something like a propitiate or atone for, um, that he might be accepted. Uh, there's really a connection that J- in Jacob's mind between his relationship with Esau, seeing his face, and then with God. And you see it in chapter 33, verse 10. It says there, Esau, or Jacob says to Esau, For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. So there's that connection that he's making between his relationship with God and his brother. We'll say more about that uh, next time. But he also sends his family over the Jabuk River, which sounds a lot like Jacob. And he does that at night, which is actually a very dangerous move. Uh, but it shows just how serious things are. And I'm just saying that I think these preparations are a picture of wisdom. And we shouldn't see these as completely negative things necessarily. Sometimes, you know, when, when he makes the, the, the branches and, and the, the, the goats and the sheep are mating and there's some things going on, and we've talked about the mandrakes and all of those things, but, but I think Jacob is ultimately trusting God to work through his actions. And that's becoming more and more clear, and it's really clear when you look at his prayer in verse 9. So look there at verse 9. And Jacob said, O God, my father, O God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. What a prayer. So we see Jacob planning, but also praying. And I think he's banking on God. He's banking on God to do the heavy lifting. And this is an amazing prayer, considering the source especially. This is the first recorded prayer by Jacob, and it is the longest prayer in Genesis. And it's beautiful. It reads like a model prayer, like the Lord's Prayer. He addresses God reverently for who he is, the Lord of all, and he he humbles himself before him, doesn't he? I'm not worthy of the wonderful things that you've done, your steadfast love and faithfulness that you've shown your servant. He has really come a long way. God's grace is at work in the sky. He acknowledges God's great blessing by by saying, when I went across this river the first time, I had a stick, and now I am two camps. Your word is true, God. So he's he's thankful. And, And he also is consistently praying God's promises back to him. Based on what 
what God, what you said, you said to me, you said these things, that I'll do you good and make your offspring great. And so based on who God is and what he's done, he then asks God to act. He petitions God. So here's my, my takeaway for, for us from, from this kind of section and what's going on here. And I'll just put it in the words of William Carey. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. That's what Jacob is doing. So let the accent of your life be on trusting God and then let that be manifested, not just in sitting and doing nothing, but bold action for God. God is going to do the heavy lifting. Don't trust your plan. Don't trust your strategy. Trust God and then plan and strategize. Every week I, I see this tension when I, when I spend time praying and trying to understand uh, a portion of the Bible. I'm going to study. I'm going to pray. I'm going to write a sermon. And I'm going to come into the pulpit week in and week out and know this is a complete and utter dud unless God shows up. There, there's a point right here when my, I, I'm done. There's nothing else I can do. And if God doesn't come and work, now he works in the preparation as well, but, but it's nothing fruitful is going to happen for anyone. Parents, we know this, don't we? We, we, we want to teach our children. We want to shepherd our children. We want to model the gospel for our children. We want to discipline our children in love. But we know that only God can save our children. We want to think about this in our own neighborhood. We want to strategize how we reach them for Christ. We should invite people to Easter. We should invite people to the Good Friday service. We should knock on doors knowing that only God can make dead hearts beat. Only God can do that. So as you pray, do what Jacob does here. In his prayer of adoration, confession, praise, and supplication, very much like the prayers that you'll see up here on Sundays, pray this way. Pray the promises of God back to God. I love the way Jacob does that here. So fight unbelief. Fight discouragement, spiritual apathy with promises. Promises. So are you anxious? Don't fight that with escapism or denial. Fight that with promises like Matthew 6, 31, that says, Therefore do not be anxious, Jesus says, what shall we eat? Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? You just insert your question there that you ask every day when you're anxious. What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Are you paralyzed by a major change, a strange providence in your life, a challenge? Pray this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I'm afraid that some of us hear Romans 8.28 like the stewardess who explains how to use the seatbelt on an airplane and we've become so familiar with it that we forget that it actually is giving us life. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Are you doubting your salvation? Are you, are you feeling guilty and, 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 and condemned because of some besetting sin and you've repented, but yet you don't think that you're cleaned up enough? Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero. Pray that prayer back to God. Don't trust your feelings. Trust God's promises. Are you worried about our church? Are you discouraged about something at UPBC? Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Friends, expect great things from God because he's promised great things. And attempt great things for God because he is worth it. These are all these these preparations that are taking place in Jacob's life. He's about to meet his brother after 20 years. But friends, that's nothing compared to who he's about to meet in person, face-to-face, alone in the darkness. So let's look at part two of our passage, transformation. Transformation. And here the narrative slows down. It's night. Jacob is alone. And I'll just say this. I think that's an emphasis that we should just pick up on. He's alone. And sometimes we need to slow down and we need to be alone with God. And that's just for free. That's for me. But that's just an observation. Okay? Verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, as you read this, we are expecting Esau to jump out of the shadow at any moment. So when we read this verse, we're expecting this man is probably Esau. But it's not. Okay? And so what we're seeing is, is, is a metaphor for Jacob's whole life that's just going to be on display for, for us and for, for him. We've seen him struggling and striving And literally from the moment he was born, he was striving with Esau in the womb. He struggled with Esau and Isaac about the blessing. He struggled and fought with Laban for 20 years and with his own wives. But in reality, he was actually fighting against God. His striving is against God. And now the exact identity of this man that is wrestling with Jacob throughout the night, throughout the night, maybe six hours, I don't know. But, but who is this man? Now, the exact identity is, is of course, debated, as, if, as are all these situations where we see the angel of the Lord uh, appear. Um, so I would encourage you to, to, to go and read what Augustine says and Calvin says, and they've done some, so they, they have differing opinions. Calvin, you know, is saying this is the pre-incarnate Christ, and Augustine, this is the angel of the Lord, a manifestation of God's presence. And, but, but I just want you to let the, let the text kind of inform the way that you, you see this um, as we go through. And so whoever it is, let's, let's let the text inform our thinking. So verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Okay, so that's just an observation. That's not a typical wrestler that can do that. Okay, so whoever this is, he's, he's, he's clearly accommodating himself, humbling himself, condescending to strive with Jacob. He's not in real danger of losing, apparently. He can end this at any time. And so this is, I think, the definition of power under control, of meekness. He he touches Jacob's hip, and it's dislocated, and he is permanently physically marked by this interaction. And I think it's at this point Jacob realizes, okay, this is no ordinary opponent. Whether he understands this to be a divine being, superior to himself, we we know that he, by, by the way that he responds that he knows that something's up. So, so the man says to Jacob, verse 26, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I love Jacob. It's like he is now clinging to this man. You can imagine his leg dangling loose because his hip is dislocated, but he won't let him go until he pronounces a blessing over him. So he knows this is somebody that possesses great power, And he knows, I think, he's wrestling with God, at least someone who represents God. And we know that, I think, from verse 30. 
So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Peniel means face of God. And so Jacob is wrestling with a God-man. And perhaps this is, this is why the, the man wants to end the match before daylight, to protect Jacob from seeing his face in the full, from seeing the fullness of his glory. God told Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live, Exodus thirty-three twenty. And like Moses, Jacob is eager to see his face. Jacob is eager to know his name, to see his glory, but he's not going to give it to him, but he does ask Jacob his name. So verse 27, and he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. I just think this is so beautiful. Uh, for, for Jacob to, to say his name to, to, to God is nothing less than a confession of sin, right? His name means deceiver, cheater, heel grabber, trickster. And so like Adam, God gives Jacob this opportunity to come clean. No more lies, no more schemes. You know, he says to Adam, where are you? To Jacob, he says, what is your name? And Jacob, through tears, uh, Hosea 12.4 says he wept and sought the man's favor. Through tears, he says his name. With, with all of the sin and shame that is attached to it. And then a very rare thing happens. It happened with Abram, who became Abraham. It happened with Sarai, who became Sarah. God changes his name. And you are now Israel, which means you have striven with God and with men and prevailed. But apart from um, that direct application to, to Jacob, Israel simply means God fights or God strives. It's as if God is saying to Jacob, you've been fighting me this whole time and I'm teaching you now to let me fight for you. I'm going to teach you that it's when you are weak that you are strong because you are trusting me. So Jacob, with me, you win by losing, by submitting to me. I am your true strength, Jacob. And my promises to Abraham are coming true through you. You're now more than a man. You're a nation. You're no longer defined by your sin. You're defined by your relationship with me. You'll never be the same. And so Jacob comes to the end of his old self and, and the beginning of his new self. Did we, in our own strength, confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. That man, the God-man, came to defeat our enemy for us. So God fights for us in Christ because we can't save ourselves Jesus takes the wrath, despises the shame, and bears the penalty on the cross. He lives a righteous life in our place, and he dies an atoning death on the cross to bring us to God, and he rose from the grave. Beloved, he rose from the grave. We have nothing to fear because he rose from the grave. Trust Jesus because he has already won the battle for you. He is the true Israel who fights for you. Don't fight against God. You will lose. You will never win that wrestling match.
Come clean with God. Come clean with him today. Tell him your name. Tell him your sin and know that he desires for you to be made new and not defined anymore by your sin, but by your relationship to him. Instead of sinner, son. Instead of deceiver, daughter. Instead of dead, alive. A co-heir with Jesus, righteous, accepted, approved, loved, secure. That's who you can be in Christ Jesus. Come to him. Look at verse 31. The sun rose upon him. So the match is over. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. I love that. Just as a remembrance. We're going to remember Jacob. We're going to remember his hip. If you're a Christian here this morning, I think this is the portrait hanging over your life right here. Verse 31. Jacob walking away, the sun rising over him, limping to the promised land. This is the posture of every saint. God's grace is a transforming grace, often a crippling grace. But he doesn't leave us where we are. Just like we can't say, if I walked in this room and said, sorry, I'm late, I just was run over by an 18-wheeler. But my hair was combed and my suit was on and there was no blood, no broken bones. You're not going to believe a word I say. The same is true if we say that we know the living God and there is no change in our life. We walk with a limp when we know God. We can't say we know God without being changed. The essence of salvation is surrender. That we we turn away from our old self and submit to God, making us a new person. And he leaves a mark on us. So thank God that he does that. Thank God that he doesn't leave us in our sin. Because there's no greater love than this. It's a love that will not let you go. Listen to these closing words of, this, of the hymn. O oh, joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not in vain, that morn shall tearless be. O oh, cross that lifted up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life glory dead and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. God's power is made perfect in weakness. When you are weak, when you are limping off into the dawn, full of hope in God, you're strong. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your transforming grace. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the picture of Jacob and his life. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage us in and through it. That we would understand that you're working in and through the pain and that you're working all things together for our good. That you love us. You adopted us into your family through Christ. Lord, we pray that we would that, that love would radiate from this place and from this people. And that as we 
walk along this road and some of us limping more than others, some of us wrestling more than, than others, Lord, would you grant us the gift to see, Lord, the beauty of Christ and the sufficiency of him and that he's all that we need. Lord, help us to meditate often on the love that will not let us go. We thank you for it and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.